even if you had the password, it'd take you 10 minutes to get in, and you still gotta find the files, man. I mean, the cops will have you in five minutes. Oh, wow, we are fried. Never send a boy to do a woman's job. With me, we can do it in seven. You both screwed. I help we do it in six. Jesus, I gotta save all your asses. I help, we could do it in five minutes, man. Okay, let's go shopping. After they accidentally discover an incriminating file, a group of hackers have to use their hacking skills to stop another evil hacker. Special guest Brett Sills joins us as we chat about sexy subcultures, how lefties shake hands, and who likes their pad thai without garlic. Get ready to hack the planet, then find out if hackers stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. Today, we have the second of our Hackers trilogy from the 80s, the 90s, and 2000s. Last week, we reviewed 1983's War Games, and today we review 1995's Hackers. And I'm joined today, as I am always, with Alan Noah. How are you, Alan? I am doing very well, and we have a special guest this week, Brett Sills is joining us to talk about hackers. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. I'm ready to hack the planet with you guys. Rigor mortis, habeas corpus. <laughs> You're diving right in. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so there is a little bit of a story of why you are here with us today, Brett. And it's not much of a story. <laughs> uh, but the story goes that when I first announced on Facebook that James and I had started a podcast on July 15th, 2016. In the comments, Brett, you wrote, let me be a guest star when you talk about hackers. And I don't remember these things. I keep a Google Doc specifically so I don't have to remember. But, you know, we were talking about doing, you know, like James just said, war games and hackers. And then next week we're going to do Swordfish. And I was like, hackers? Someone wanted to do hackers. And I looked at the Google Doc and I saw that it was you, Brett. And I just have to apologize that you asked for this six <laughs> years ago. Six years ago, and we are finally getting around to it now. That's like a horrific delay. You asked when I posted about our second episode. This is episode 333, so my bad. I've been preparing for 300 episodes to talk about hackers, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come really, really prepared. I think I was mentioned on one of your old shows for uh, about my disdain for the end of Ghostbusters 2, if you recall that. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 because I remember that you didn't just dislike it, but you like hated it with hated like a vitriol. It. Oh, yeah, to the point where I don't recognize it as a movie. And yes, that that last line is still awful about like the fettuccines. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so much awful about that. Film. Yeah. <laughs> Although, as I've mentioned, a plug for Ghostbusters Afterlife, the, the latest film by Jason Reitman. That was a, a worthy sequel to Ghostbusters. Certainly better than Ghostbusters 2. That is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's also interesting that uh, it took so long for us to invite you on the show to do Hackers because we, we mentioned it briefly when we uh, talked about uh, our trilogy here. This was one of the original ideas that we kind of tossed back and forth to each other. We kept thinking of, we'll do war games and hackers. And uh, <laughs> then we came up later with uh, Swordfish for uh, the, the 2000s. But Al, did you even know this film? Did you know this film existed? No. And when you wrote on Facebook, Brett, that you wanted to come on for hackers, I responded of like, oh, I've never seen that. <laughs> um, and I knew of it, but I had never seen it. But so, like, what's your relationship with this movie, Brett, that, like, you saw that we had a movie podcast and immediately that was, like, your first comment? 
It's a movie I've long related to. I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it actually probably like 96 or something like that on VHS because my friend who I've lost touch with is actually in it. Um, and Whoa. yes, he's in the transfer form scene uh, and you just see him in the background. And, and I believe the story behind it was it was a directed role at one point. At one point, he was supposed to hand the transfer forms to John Lee Miller. Uh, so he would get these royalty checks from hackers for like 15 cents for like, you know, like three years, four years. So that's when I first saw it. And after first seeing it, I was like, this is the sexiest movie I've ever seen. And it's one of those movies I've still watched like every single year. Uh, and I have new opinions on it every time I watch it. Do you still consider it the sexiest movie ever? I still think it's damn sexy. <laughs> I wasn't a hacker or anything, but one thing I do think it does is capture what it feels like to be in a 1990s New York subculture. And for me, it was indie rock. But this idea of you're a part of this group that has this esoteric knowledge about something that you could like have an air of superiority about, it captures that absolutely perfectly in the sexiest way. One of the beautiful things about Hackers is I think it's a very underrated New York movie and um, makes the city of New York feel sexy, you know, in all these different kind of shots around the city, whether it's Grand Central Station or the World Trade Center. Um, everything from the outfits to the music, which is, I think, really stood the test of time, the soundtrack. It still just has this, this sexiness to it that feels frozen in time to me. I knew this film as well, and I've talked about how I don't watch trailers uh, anymore, but back in the day, I did watch trailers, and I remember being excited about this film. I remember thinking this was a cool idea. I was definitely very interested in it. I don't think I saw this in the theater, and as I'll let you know later, no one saw this in the theater. <laughs> and those 15-cent royalty checks, I'm going to say, wow, I, you got a decent chunk of the box office. <laughs> <laughs> those things. But um, I saw it early on, but I missed it in the theaters. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's just remind our listeners what the movie's about. It's about a hacker named Dade Murphy, aka Zero Cool, a.k.a. Crash Override. Nice, nice. Dade was convicted as a child for felony hacking and was prohibited from using computers and touch-tone phones, whatever those are. But as a teenager, Dade continued his hacking habits. Now in New York City, he befriends a group of fellow hackers who inadvertently stumble onto a plot to steal millions of dollars from the Ellingson Corporation. Eugene Belford, a.k.a. The Plague, is a computer security officer at Ellingson and the mastermind behind this plot. Once he finds out that teens have discovered his work, he frames them for extorting the company. To clear their names, Dade has to team up with his fellow hackers, Freak, Serial Killer, Lord Nikon, Joey, and the beautiful Acid Burn. So when this movie came out in 1995, it was very, very, very far from a hit at the box office, right, James? Yeah, yeah. This film uh, came out on September 5th, 1995, and it opened at number four with $3 million, and it puttered out with $7.5 million the next weekend. It was in theaters for two weekends. Oof. I will say the the number one film uh, the, the week it came out, I'm sure we'll review it at some point. I've never seen this film but I remember it being the longest title of any film that I remember uh, seeing in a, in a theater when we were kids. It's a sentence. An Englishman went up a hill and came down a mountain? Damn it, that's actually longer than this one. But uh, <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It's the kind of thing that you would write on the back of a postcard to somebody. To Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. That's right. Ah. That's more than a sentence. Yeah. Right? That's like an introduction, a sentence, and a conclusion. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, like a sentence is don't tell mom the babysitter's dead or, you know, stop or my mom will shoot, things like that. But yeah, that is a very long title. Yeah. Uh, but that lasted longer than uh, this film in theaters. It was not a hit. But I guess uh, like people like me and Brett, enough of us were interested to see it uh, when it finally came out that I guess, honestly, that's why years later your buddy was getting uh, you know, 15 cent royalty checks. It definitely became a cult classic. I mean, to the point where it just, you know, had its, I guess, 25 year anniversary, if my math is correct. And you saw a lot of yeah. retrospectives online. I mean, obviously, Angelina Jolie's popularity has helped keep it in the zeitgeist a little bit, but um, there definitely is a, a cult following. 
the biggest breakout would be Angelina Jolie. But there's also uh, big stars uh, that have done lots of stuff. Uh, Matthew Lillard, Jesse Bradford, he's been in a lot of stuff. Um, Lorraine Bracco, I totally forgot she was in this. Um, yeah. Fisher Stevens, uh, he, he pops up in here. The director of this film, um, Ian Softly, He's made a couple of films. I've I've never seen any of them, but I've always found them somewhat like intriguing. He made this film uh, with uh, it was a Kevin Spacey film, K Pax. Mm-hmm. You remember that film? Like, is this guy an alien or is he crazy? I saw K Pax in the theater. Was it good? I don't remember, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I definitely saw it in the theater. But um, the cast is pretty cool. And then there's one other guy that's uh, that's fantastic in this. I actually think he's he's funny. He's one of the security guys that works for Fisher Stevens' character. Did you recognize this actor, Al? Of course, of course. I know Penn Gillette when I see him. Right. Um, it turns out Mark Antony is also in, in this uh, movie. I did not recognize him. He looked familiar. I didn't recognize that it was uh, Mark Anthony, but um, yeah, I was like, oh, that's that guy? Like the singer? The one who is married to Jennifer Lopez? He's like Agent Ray. They focus more on uh, Agent Gill in this film, so I guess it's uh, easy to miss uh, Mark Anthony. And also, Agent Gill is the great bunk from The Wire. And also, Felicity Huffman is in this movie. Academy Award-nominated Felicity Huffman plays a very, very bit role in this movie as an attorney, I believe. So this is crawling with uh, talent. It really is. And I want to give a a little shout-out to Johnny Lee Miller because of one role that I associate him with, and that is the TV show Eli Stone. Did you guys happen to watch that? No. No. I don't think a lot of people did. It lasted for two seasons, and the whole kind of pitch was that he was a lawyer, but also he got, like, divine intervention. So it was kind of like a procedural, but there was, like, an overall story arc. It kind of made me think a little bit of Quantum Leap. I think it followed or preceded Lost for a season or two. It kind of sounds like early edition. The guy who got the paper the day before it came out. And it may or may not have come from God. It sounds similar. (laughs) But the reason that I will always forever remember that show is because when Courtney was pregnant and we were thinking of a name for our child, I wanted to have a name that started with the letter E. And we thought of Eli kind of because of the show Eli Stone. We didn't name Eli After that show that lasted for two seasons, nor did we name him after Eli Manning. We just like the name Eli. But um, I think that show kind of steered us in that direction. So that will forever be my like association with Johnny Lee Miller. I think one of the more famous things about John Lee Miller's early uh, career is that he was married to Angelina Jolie. I don't know if they met on this film, but they were married uh, shortly after this, uh, married for a few years. There is definite chemistry between their characters. That's obvious. Like You could tell if they're not dating during the film, they were definitely into each other. Really? I didn't pick up on that. Oh, I, I thought so. I actually thought that Angelina Jolie was very good as, a, as an actress in this because she was giving that whole, I'm not into you, like barely looking at you on the motorcycle while I'm hanging out with another guy, but giving you this one look of like, yeah, I'm actually super into you. Let me tell you about Teenage Brett loved Angelina Jolie. Like before <laughs> before she was Gia or anything, she was the girl from Hackers. Um, and my friend's father, he used to do the funniest thing. Anytime he would see a pretty girl on TV, he would slap the side of his chair and go like an F sound. And Ange- <laughs> Angelina Jolie is in the Hall of Fame in this for this movie. Like, Sexiest woman alive uh, is Angelina Jolie in Hackers. Um, right out of the gate, when he's doing his first hacking, the adult day, not the little kid, he hacks into a TV station and there is this like right wing blowhard doing a show called America First. And watching that now was like, holy shit. That really stands the test of time. Like, these fuckers were on TV in 95, too. I don't know why that surprises me. I guess it shouldn't. But, um, yeah, that really kind of stuck out at me from a test of time perspective. Oh, I thought the same thing when I said America first. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit about Fisher Stevens' character, The Plague. He is, I think, supposed to be intimidating right like he's the villain so he's supposed to be kind of scary right correct 
Did you find him intimidating, like, as a teenager, Brett? Sure. The idea, and this is something else that probably stood the test of time, of what hackers are capable of, right? And how they can ruin your life with, like, the, the push of a button in ways we don't understand. And he was presented as the god of, who could do anything he wanted. And there was this kind of sternness to him. He, he gets a little silly at times, like the times when he's playing virtual reality. But there was something kind of sinister and unapologetic about him that uh, was a little cartoonish. But at the same time, I mean... He felt dangerous to me, sure. See, I think the thing that makes him not intimidating, well, it's two things. One is I associate him with Short Circuit and Short Circuit 2, (laughs) and that character is the polar opposite of intimidating. But also, he's just skateboarding a lot in this movie, and- Like, to be fair, everyone is, but like when he is skateboarding around the office or when they do the, um, I guess you'd call it like the drop Mm -hmm. when Dade is going to hand him the disc with like the incriminating information and Dade is waiting and he's pacing back and forth and it's a super foggy night. And then the plague shows up and he just like grabs it like (laughs) while riding a skateboard That, to me, was like the cartoony part of what you're saying, but not the scary cartoony part. This is not a dig on Fisher Stevens. He's a fine enough actor. I just think he's miscast in this role, perhaps, because this is kind of an older version of these younger hackers. That's fine. I think there was something I didn't buy about it. I bought those guys that were uh, skating around. There's another uh, young actor, the guy who plays uh, Phantom Freak, uh, Rinoli Santiago. We saw him in Con Air. He's the uh, convict of Sally Can't Dance. And Mm -hmm. there's a rave. And these guys look like they skate. Uh, rollerblade and they and they skateboard it, it, it fitted fisher stevens he didn't look the part everyone else kind of had that edge they were cast well jesse bradford is this dorky like a kid who would be a hacker everyone kind of looked a little bit uh, alternative at the time to use a 1995 term but he just had like long hair and a trench coat and <laughs> Something about him just, I didn't buy the authenticity of him. Whereas I thought that everyone else in their roles themselves were cast well. There was one line that he gave that I really, really loved when Agent Gill, who's like the Secret Service guy, he hands him a folder, a report or whatever, and Plague says, Ugh, hard copy. When he said that, I felt a kinship to him because I hate hard copies of anything. It just kind of annoys me. Like, I'm going to lose the paper, email it to me, just text it to me, something like that. Part of it is because, like, you know, I try to be green and environmentally friendly, but also just, like, I don't want paper because it's not a practical thing. I used to work at a company where we would go into the conference room and someone would say, oh, I got this email and I want everyone to see it. So I printed out copies and here everyone gets a copy of the email. Like, you know, there's another way to to forward someone an email, right? That's like a button right there. But um, I appreciated his hatred of hard copies. You know, I totally see what you guys are saying. The only thing I didn't buy is that Lorraine Bracco would be in love with him. Like that was like actually <laughs> the strange. It was like the strangest pairing. Everybody else was, um, I think, paired pretty well. But I think out of all the people who didn't fit in the movie, she's the one who didn't fit in the movie to me. I agree a hundred percent. And this is not her acting. I think this is a, either a screenplay thing or my guess more is the final cut of the film really reduced her character to the point where why is she in this film and if her character is eliminated does it change the movie at all she doesn't really have anything to do with the plot i don't know what her character was doing my guess is that it was cut from the final uh version that we saw certainly could be you know it's funny that you say that james there were definitely a few times where i felt like there were scenes missing from the movie i can think of two examples off the top of my head One, it's not really a scene, but when Dade is talking to Plague on the phone, the scene starts with them talking to each other on the phone, and sometimes it can be strategic to start a scene in, like, the middle of a conversation, but I was like, wait, who called who? 
Like, that's important. You know, like, who reached out to who is important context for this scene. But the bigger one that I noticed was at the end of the movie when they're tracking down Razor and Blade and they're in, like, the nightclub. Dade is, like, going to find them on the stage and then he ends up crowd surfing. Angelina Jolie is like, oh, no, I can't find them. I lost them. And then cut to they're in their lair. They're just like they're talking to like the the security camera. It's like there's a scene missing. Something is missing there. I don't know if it was stuff that was shot and then cut or things that they just never bothered to film. Who knows? But like there definitely seemed to be some connective tissue that just wasn't in this final cut. I say that was a good choice because the last thing they needed at that point was another obstacle like, hey, we can't find the people <laughs> that we need. Because the movie was pretty fast and furious by that point, right? Like um, the one thing in my rewatch that I didn't recall was actually just how, how quickly, you know, that whole climactic scene actually was. Yeah, so I think any more time actually just would have bogged it down because it really kept the pace. I agree with you there, Brett. It definitely gets fast and furious, especially at the end. And like when they're doing these fast and furious, like hacking things, the visuals of kind of like inside a computer mainframe coupled with like real world stuff, coupled with like mathematical formulas on the screen. I get that it's hard to show hacking. I mean... In a movie, how much can you see of someone behind a keyboard just clacking away? Like, you need to have something more visually exciting. But I felt like it was kind of jarring, just visually for me. Especially in 1995, people had had no clue what hacking was. That's something they talk about in the movie. So, you know, when they're, like, going through, like, the mainframe, like, it's like a city. and They're like a spaceship. It kind of gives this this timelessness to the movie. And they do do a little bit of that stuff that, Alan, that you were talking about where it's just, like, codes and whatever. And then all of a sudden, like, the world opens up into something that's a bit more graphical. And it gives the movie kind of, like, a dreamlike quality that... I think is kind of consistent throughout the rest of the movie. Like they have often from Dade's point of view, they'll have like little flashes, these like little random moments where it's like we're in his head. And I do think the hacking kind of reflects that as well. um, That puts the movie in this sort of hyper-realistic realm. That's fair. That's a good point. It's very difficult to depict hacking, either exciting or visually intriguing. The show Mr. Robot, um, they're able to do some interesting things on there. The animations through the computer, that's whatever. I mean, they do something like that in uh, in Jurassic Park at the climax when the young girl is trying to like visually look in the computer. That's to help the audience figure it out. That's fine. But one thing that really kind of annoyed me about the film was, I guess you'd call it the MacGuffin of the film, and that's when they come across the, uh, the plague's uh, virus. Isn't it a worm, not a virus? Yes, a a worm, I guess. They do make that distinction. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Good call. And um, when he gets into this file, instead of just showing lots of code and maybe in different colors the code or something, it goes into this weird animation where it almost looks like the beginning of the Twilight Zone where E equals MC squared kind of twirls around in space. But like, uh, you know, a 90s uh, upgraded version of that. I would have at least liked it to say things like something, 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 oil tankers, you know, at least to see something because I didn't know what I was looking at. It was all Greek letters, you know, in in mathematical formulas. It looked just like physics formulas or calculus. So that I I thought was a mistake, uh, I guess, on the visual side. Yeah, but let's also talk about just some of the technological terms that they throw around in this movie. They call out specifically a 28.8 modem and like, whoa, how cool is that? (laughs) And they talk about like one chip that is triple the speed of a Pentium and like, They should have known. They should have known that these terms were going to be outdated really, really fast because 28.8 was top of the line modem, but only how many years after 14.4. So they should have known that, like, there was going to be another bigger number soon. You know, I completely agree. 
But the way they talk is exactly how teenagers would have talked in, in 1995 about, wow, a 28.8-bit modem because other people would have only had 24 baud, 9600 baud, or 14.4, like you said. There's a reason, at least in the in the movie, when they're filming it, they're excited about 28.8. I'm old enough to remember when the 28.8s and the 56Ks came out, and that was a big deal. My first modem was actually a 2400 baud. That's a basically 2.4 compared to the 14.4. We can't forget that this was 1995 and this idea of technology getting better and better uh, at a rapid pace just didn't exist yet. So a lot of these terms that they were throwing out sounded very futuristic and we didn't know that they would be obsolete in a few years. And yeah, you could tell the writer spent time with computer hackers and I think wanted to do right by them. Remember that scene when they're in like that cyberpunk cafe and they bring out all the books about Unix and Linux and whatever they're talking about. So they really wanted to pay homage to the actual hacking community um, and do right by them. That's fair. That's fair. The line about like the most common passwords that oh, like God. the like <laughs> it's, it's sex and secret and God and there's a fourth one. Oh, love. I really wonder if that was true. You know, like maybe that was true in 1995. Now you hear that like the most common passwords are password and like password one two three yeah but also a three-letter password no one will let you do a three-letter password (laughs) sex or god i still have to come back to 1995 I, i remember you know in high school they made an email address database of every student this in my senior year this was 1997 and there was only about 30 kids So only 30 kids even had an email address. And this came out in 1995. So much of this stuff was, you know, ground floor. I'm going to guess that these passwords are also accurate because I think they mentioned maybe more than once that the most common passwords are, you know, these four words. Yeah, I feel like that was probably in an issue of like 2600 magazine. Yeah. That was this old hackers magazine. Uh, They used to sell it at the bookstore I worked at in (laughs) high school. It seemed legit at the time. So I'll bet it was something that at least the screener read somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did like the little duel scene. There's this little montage where it's Crash Override versus uh, Acid Burn. And they kind of are seeing who could out-hack each other, basically to annoy the life of this Asian Gills that's chasing them. I thought that was a cute sequence. It's my favorite se- sequence in the movie. Really? Yeah. When they agree to the duel, they shake hands with their left hands. And <laughs> like I paused it and rewound it because I was like, why would they do do that like maybe they are lefties in the movie i didn't really notice that it just looked like an awkward handshake and then i you know rewound 10 seconds i was like oh yeah why would they go with their left hands very small detail but like they're also like kind of working together when they do the personal ad for gill that is dade that's doing it but it's also acid burn who's like helping him come up with the terms that he should put in the personal ad but like if they're dueling then they shouldn't be working together i would think also they use some words that we would consider un-pc today oh just say you're into transvestites or whatever that wouldn't fly today My issue with that was, why is taking a personal ad out hacking? Like, I actually didn't realize that until I watched it this time. Um, All the other things about, like, the parking tickets and obviously making him deceased. Yeah, that's hacking. But taking out a personal ad? It did give us that wonderful scene of Wendell Pierce, though, uh, fielding the phone calls. Um, (laughs) Which is, uh, he was just showing his acting chops, actually, I think, in that scene. It was pretty funny. Which part of the duel required them to go to the top of the Empire State Building? And follow-up question, why? Because they were showing the beauty of New York in this movie. Let me tell you. Okay, let me tell you. Also, why in in the scene we were talking about earlier when uh, Fisher Stevens uh, rolls up and grabs the disc, he's in Brooklyn, I think, for some reason. But, like, they just have that beautiful shot of the World Trade Center in the background. Um, Yeah, on top of the Empire State Building, Grand Central Station, downtown New York. This is a great New York movie. And, uh, you know, they just wanted to show off the landscape. And you know what? They should have had more. <laughs> um, I thought that scene on top of the Empire State Building or whatever skyscraper that was, I thought they were implying that if they had a some kind of high antenna, that they were doing some kind of signal that I guess couldn't be traced or that they'd be able to do whatever hack they were doing. Um, one other piece of information, according to InStyle magazine, Angelina Jolie is a lefty. Ah. 
okay. <laughs> so, I mean, that would have to explain it because it would be weird otherwise. I did quickly look up, um, is Johnny Lee Miller a lefty? And all I saw is, uh, it was the Google excerpt that said, I was a lefty growing up, but it was political. <laughs> I grew up as a political lefty. I'm like, I, I don't think that means the hand. But uh, I'll bet you uh, Angelina said she wanted to do a lefty. And I guess it was an artist's choice. Do lefties shake hands with other left-handed people with their left hands? The really beautiful ones do. I guess that would make sense. Last week, we talked about war games. And based on war games, they passed the Computer Fraud Act of 1986. And that is what uh, Dade, when he was zero cool as a child, he was convicted of the Computer Fraud Act of 1986. So I thought that was a little connection between the two films. James dropping knowledge. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. It all comes together. And it all comes down to the final half. They basically got to get into the mainframe, but at the same time, the plague is going to be doing his system operator antivirus work, so they're all going to be hacking, like, five guys simultaneously. Well, so the plague's plot is he's covering his tracks with this oil spill ruse where he's going to capsize some tankers, and that's going to distract from his worm where he's stealing money. And the deadline that they give is that this is all going to happen at 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. These five tankers will spill untold amounts of oil into the ocean or some sea or whatever. And he calls Agent Gill and is like, you better take care of this now. And Agent Gill says, okay, we'll arrest them tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Why? Why would you wait until an hour and a half before the terrible disaster is going to happen. Why not go after them now? I mean, the FBI must have some agents who work at night, I would think, right? Speaking of the arrest scene, I want to say before they arrest one of the kids, they film the scene basically twice in a row where the kid dreams of being arrested and then he wakes up, oh, phew, it was just a dream. And then he gets arrested. And then he goes, whoa, talk about deja vu. And I liked it. I liked the choice they made. I think it adds to the dreamlike quality of the whole film that they really start from the opening scene. And and I think literally the last line in the movie is I've been having these weird dreams lately. So they, they do play with that quite a bit. Um, and again, I, I think it gives the film a necessary hyper-realism that I think if it was handled any other way, it would be really, really cheesy. But I mean, all the aesthetic of the film, even down to the outfits. And I do think when you're talking about hackers, you need to talk about the outfits because they are timeless too. Angelina Jolie comes to school, I think, wearing a wetsuit at one point. You know, like Dade's jacket is very interesting. Um, all of Freak's clothing, I don't know where they, you know, got any of that stuff. But again, it gives it their subculture and the entire movie just, again, I keep saying it, but sort of a hyper-realistic quality that I think works. That's fair. And honestly, like, I kind of thought that the dream sequences were annoying. But listening to you describe it in that way, it kind of makes me see it in a new way. So I appreciate that perspective, Brett. Um, I didn't love the thing that they do to get the cops off of their trails when they mess with all of the green lights in the city because, yeah, it slows the cops down, but it also must have killed a lot (laughs) of people, right? Like, a lot of pedestrians died. A lot of people are paralyzed. A lot of people will never walk again. Like, it seems like all of the lights go green for like a very long stretch in Manhattan. I mean, it took until our time uh, of like Marvel films to think about the collateral damage in some of these films. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it that it was a gag, but I just couldn't help but think of all of the people that they killed. And they're trying to be the good guys here. They are the good guys here. So operating in a way that would minimize collateral damage would be smart. I guess the counterpoint is, yeah, but they're all 16, 17 years old. They're not thinking all of these things through. So maybe you can kind of forgive some of that. 
they're also all about fucking shit up, if I can say that. I mean, throughout the entire movie, they're not exactly acting honorably. Like, the competition is trying to make a, a cop's life a living hell. And they are right. enjoying every second of it. So, obviously, they're saving their own butts there at the end. But um, I do think part of their culture is about, you know, breaking down the establishment at any cost. And that's what kind of makes them cool. Zero cool? Zero cool. <laughs> Can we just talk about how cool those names are? I'm sorry, but like Zero Cool, Lord Nikon for a guy with photographic memory, Serial Killer. These are cool names. Like that one scene towards the end when they're all booting up their computers and like you see like their call signs or whatever come up one by one. Cool scene. I could watch that all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I love the handles in this film. You're absolutely right. And speaking of serial killer, this actor, I don't think gets the credit he deserves. Matthew Lillard. This guy's really funny. I, I like this actor. He's uh, probably some of his more famous roles. Uh, he was in Scream. He was in the Scooby-Doo films. Um, he's in a lot of 90s teen films. And I think he's really funny in this film. I feel like in all of those movies, he plays the exact same character. Yeah, the exact same funny character. I'm with James. He's throwing 100 miles per hour this entire movie. <laughs> and when he's on that Times Square screen at the end, whew. I agree with what you're saying. And I do believe that Matthew Lillard has played more serious roles lately. He doesn't have the, like, stoner dreadlock hair anymore. <laughs> I just couldn't take him seriously. And you're not supposed to, obviously. But, like, his rants that he goes on where he's talking about, like, George Orwell's here now, man. Like, we don't have names, you know? We're nameless. Everyone knows someone like that. You know, a stoner who really thinks that they're deep, but they just kind of say nonsense. I laughed when he said, it's a wake-up call for the Nintendo generation. Because, <laughs> you know... I guess that's us. <laughs> well, certainly the NES generation. Sure, sure. But getting back to when they boot up their computers in Grand Central Station, they're doing it in phone booths. And that makes sense because in 1995, if you wanted to go online, you needed a phone line and they can't do it at home because the cops will be there. So I get why they went to Grand Central Station and it's been a while since I personally have been in Grand Central Station, but I'm sure that there are not five payphones in a row like you see in this movie. And I was kind of thinking about it like from a test of time perspective. It would be kind of funny if you made a hacking movie today and payphones were a part of the plot. <laughs> you know, if it was like... We can't go anywhere else. This is the only thing where they won't be looking for us, man. We got to go to a public payphone. But I think the problem with it is that everything in this movie, when it relates to hacking, is related to the phone line. Uh, at one point, one of the characters says, I'm Lord of 9X. Yeah. <laughs> That's the old telephone company that doesn't exist. And yeah, now being online and using a landline, those two things are so completely divorced. Although I guess if you do associate going online with your cell phone, maybe that's not totally divorced? Perhaps not. In the basement of my uh, New York City apartment building, there's these huge boxes where the cable is there, and then there's one where all the phone lines are hooked up, the landlines. And there were bumper stickers that kept getting crossed out, and they would say, property of New York telephone. <laughs> then below it, it said property of 9X. And then below <laughs> that, it said property of Bell Atlantic. And then finally, property of Verizon. Right. But while there may not be payphones in Grand Central Station, you know what there definitely are? Trash cans. Lots and lots <laughs> of trash cans. And when Dade is like, they're trashing our rights. Our rights are being trashed. And then Matthew Lillard gets it. Oh, he hid the disc in the trash. Okay, that's kind of clever. But he just immediately finds the trash can. You would think he'd have to go through several. Listen, these guys are geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> they threw that for 90 minutes to that point. They know exactly where the trash can is. That's that's simple stuff. <laughs> the part that I didn't get was uh, why were they all together if they were all in Grand Central Station? Why not be a five different uh, payphone terminals? Well, that I can easily answer. Because they're a team, James. 
they did have to talk each other through it a little bit. But couldn't they have some walkie-talkie or something? Like, <laughs> I, I think it was more for aesthetic because if you put all five of you in five different places, even in five different parts of New York City, it would be harder for the cops or you know, the FBI to catch all of you in time. Right. Also, the, the pay phone booths that they're in are spinny phone booths because, you mm. know, like they have like that rotational shot, which I don't know, whatever. It's fine. I have a question, though. Obviously, this this movie is about hacking, and this was in 1995. They hack into all sorts of databases where there's all sorts of information. How much of this do you think actually existed? Like, for the scene where Dade changes his class schedule to get to Angelina Jolie's class, like, they go into a database where her picture is there, her entire class schedule is there. How much of, of this stuff do you think was even possible to break into at that point? Uh, I think a good amount of it. Uh, really? I'll bet you that... Uh, it was probably just totally unsecure. Do you think the school sprinkler systems were on some sort of computer network? No, I do not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think those were networked, but I bet you could change your grade in the 80s and 90s. I mm-hmm. totally believed it in war games because all it took, there was one computer on, on campus that was connected somehow. Speaking of databases, uh, they do reference the FBI's computer, not like their database. They say the FBI's computer has information on 20 million people that's funny from like a test of time perspective that like in 1995 they would think that's a very large number (laughs) now in our like police state you'd be like why only 20 20 million we know if you like pad thai with garlic or without garlic (laughs) that's in your file who likes pad thai without garlic (laughs) well the fbi knows exactly who and they can search by that um, so the hackers win. Actually, there was sort of a, a global coordinated hacking effort. And I guess today it would have been like a tweet or even an email possibly. But the way they did it in 95, yeah, they, they just had to call each other. So there was a little montage of everyone calling each other one at a time. But I kind of did the math on it. And yeah, you need like 25, 30 seconds to dial say what to do, tell them who to call next. And I'm like, they're just not going to get enough people like they would today. Today, you can get thousands, tens of thousands of people, millions within, you know, moments. But uh, I guess they did the job and they were able to win. And shout out to the set decorator of the other hackers from around the world. The dark rooms that they were in with the candles as if they were like getting in the mood uh, for this hack around the planet. Um, It really uh, did set the mood. Hack the planet. (laughs) Indeed, literally. Um. When they arrest Plague, Fisher Stevens' character, they do it when he's on a plane flying to Japan or somewhere, but like they wait till they're midair to arrest him. I think they just took off because they announced the mileage. But even still, why do it after you take off? Like, do it when you're still at the airport so you can take the guy off of the plane and then bring him right to jail. It's cooler. I guess. (laughs) I guess. All right. So, Brett... I'm going to ask you as our very special guest, you clearly love this movie, but do you think that Hackers stands the test of time? Not only does Hackers stand the test of time, it's ahead of its time and timeless at the same time. Uh, Whoa. Yes, all of that. I mean, between like, you know, the outfits and the dreamlike quality, give it its timelessness. But I actually think a lot of the themes and a lot of the things that the FBI is talking about is very prescient. I don't think it's actually changed much in 25 years. People are still talking about the horrors of hacking and the dangers of hacking. And, you know, going back to the idea that these people can hack the planet, like the entire planet, where like every TV screen in the planet is now broadcasting Matthew Lillard you know obviously that's impossible but like the way that today's current public like talks about the hacker group anonymous they still talk about them in these terms as if they can do those sorts of things obviously they're talking about a lot of the old technology and that sort of dates it a bit and we're talking about the payphones and that sort of dates it a bit but I think the idea of what the public thinks hacking is and what hackers look like and what hackers are capable of hasn't really changed so much in 25 years and also the question isn't do people like the movie hackers it's does it stand the test of time so I still think it's as as sexy of a movie as it was 25 years ago it still moves at an amazing pace yes it's not a perfect movie but it captures something that's very cool and very sexy and it's a movie that I sit down with probably once a year still yes a resounding yes it stands the test of time it's a beautiful movie should have won a million Oscars all the science and technical awards Uh, (laughs) it's one of my favorite movies um, and I I can't uh, say enough about it 
All right, James, what do you think? Um, you know, I saw this film uh, twice in my life. I saw this in, I guess it was probably uh, mid to late 90s. And then I saw this yesterday. And I also mentioned earlier that I was very, very excited to see this film, even though I kind of missed it. None of my friends wanted to see it in the two weeks it was, uh, it was out. There's a lot I like in this film. Most of the cast, I think, is really well cast. Uh, Pendulette, he's off as the best comic relief in the film. I think everything is is right there for the film to be good. The problem I had with the film um, 20 years ago that I still do, the actual plot of the film, them versus the plague, I'm excited about everything else in the film. I like the rave scenes. I like the party scenes. I like the beginning. I like him as a kid. It gives New York a very cool aesthetic. But yeah, this 90s like uh, spray paint everywhere. But it's a cool place. I love the environment and the universe of this film. The soundtrack is great. Just the plot is not good. I wish it was a better plot. I, I find it kind of boring. One other thing about Standing the Test of Time, uh, the, the technology, I absolutely uh, agree with you, Al, that they should have known that this wouldn't stand up because as a kid, I used to read all of these computer magazines and, and they would always talk about this thing called Moore's Law. And mm-hmm. Moore's Law is this law that every two years, uh, the number of transistors on a microprocessor will double. And that has been pretty accurate since 1965. And even if you didn't know that law, it's just, you know, it's a technology thing. Don't talk about your iPhone 14 today if your whole thing about your film is about how sleek and cool and how up to date you want it to sound. It just unfortunately, the plot isn't great. And that's the only reason I don't think the film stands up. It's for me a lot of great pieces, a lot of great ingredients. Just the recipe came out fine. I don't want to come to this restaurant again, unfortunately. I see why you liked it. I just wish it connected with me more. So for that reason, it didn't stand up. That leaves us one-to-one, Al. What do you think, Al? 1995's Hackers. You mentioned this before, James, about how you wanted to do War Games and Hackers together a long time ago. I actually have your email from July 18th, 2016. Wow. Here's what you said. I think a great episode would be to do hackers and war games. So you were imagining them both in one episode, which we don't do. Sometimes we do it. Whatever. Two old movies that are tech-based featuring a ton of outdated technology, but one still stands and one doesn't, in my opinion. Hackers is a great one since, spoiler alert, it's the epitome of, quote, doesn't stand the test of time. It breaks several rules for being timeless and would be great for us to discuss all the ways it declares itself as a mid-90s film. So that's what you said six years ago. Wow. And I think that your assessment does, in fact, stand the test of time. I agree with a lot of what you said there. And that email was from 2016. Brett, your request to come on the show was from 2016. And we made you wait for six goddamn years. And then I invite you on, you come on, and all we do, or maybe all I do, is shit all over your favorite movie (laughs) and... I'm sorry. I started off the episode by apologizing to you, Brett, and I got to apologize to you again. I'm sorry. I really, really, truly am. But I do not think this movie stands the test of time. I think that your love of it, honestly, truly is infectious, and it does kind of make me appreciate the movie more. And I think you do have a very valid point that hacking is still a threat. Hacking is still a thing that people are worried about. But I think just the way that this movie approaches it and the way that they make hackers as like the heroes, I mean, I guess the villain is also a hacker, so maybe it's kind of more shades of gray. I think you could do a movie today where hackers are good guys and they're here to protect us, even though they like breaking into systems. They're they're Robin Hoods, right? They steal from the rich and give to the poor. Sure, you could definitely do that kind of movie. You know, 
I said last week about War Games that that movie kind of felt like a time capsule for 1983. This movie really feels like a time capsule for 1995. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. I mean, that's when the movie was made. So fair, right? But I think it just feels really, really dated. You mentioned the soundtrack, Brett. Honestly, I didn't love 99% of the songs on the soundtrack. I'm not a big techno electronica fan, but I do love the song Connected by Stereo MCs. Uh, at one point, Matthew Lillard is talking about like his mixtape with all of the artists who died by choking to death on their own vomit. He gets it wrong, by the way. He he says um, Mama Cass and Janis Joplin, they did not die <laughs> of uh, choking on their own vomit. John Bonham and Bon Scott did whatever. But the point is, is that Connected by Stereo MCs was on a mixtape that I had because I really, really love that song. One quick thing while we're talking about music, the ending song, uh, Heaven Knows by Squeeze. Maybe I'm the only person uh, who still has it on their phone and still listens to it every so often. But I think it's a great way to end the movie. It's that beautiful scene where they're in the pool and they're again, it's a dreamlike scene when they're underwater and kissing to the squeeze. You know, it's funny. I didn't even recognize that that was Squeeze. And I really like Squeeze. <laughs> um, but I think that the movie with all of its jolt cola and floppy disks and pay phones and everything, there's just too much in there that I can't say it stands the test of time. And... Um, I'm sorry, Brett. I really You am. guys can be wrong. It's okay. No, uh, you know, as I was saying, it's like there's obviously a lot in this movie that dates it. But I do think that the themes and the way hacking is is spoken about is still relevant. But really, the reason for me why it still t- stands the test of time is that here is about a counterculture in New York City with these cool kids, and they still feel cool to me. They still feel like a group of kids I want to hang out with. And at the end of the day, this still is a movie about friendship, about outcasts coming together. And, you know, going back to, I think what James said earlier, I I think, you know, the chemistry with not just Angelina Jolie and Johnny Miller, I think with all of them is actually quite good. And I do love watching that friendship and just watching how they interact with each other regardless of whether or not John Lee Miller is like in the mirror, you know, like he's, uh, I don't know, some cowboy with his uh, floppy disks. Um, So yeah, no, I do recognize, obviously, that a lot of it is dated. But I still think as a movie, as an enjoyable movie, it's still 100% uh, stands the test of time. I will stand by that. I will go to my grave with that. And I don't (laughs) mind taking the L here. This still remains one of my favorite movies. And uh, I'll, I'll continue to watch it. That's fair. And, you know, I would say to not look at it as an L, and I am biased because I shit all over your favorite movie, (laughs) but I would like to look at it as, hey, we got to hang out and talk about a movie, and it was great seeing you. I clearly owe you many more apologies for (laughs) uh, the six-year wait to, to shit on the movie, but this was still fun. I'm glad I watched the movie. I'm glad I've seen it, and uh, I'm really glad that we were able to, to chat about it. So that's all a win. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. I love chatting about my favorite movies. If you guys ever do the Before Trilogy, those are actually my favorite, favorite movies. um, And I could talk about them forever. Is Before Midnight uh, 15 years old, Al? Uh, I don't know. It came out in like 2012, I think. Before Sunset is definitely like our high school. I want to say it's like 94, 2003, and then yeah, like 2012. All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to put it on the list in the Google Doc right now before I forget that Brett Sills wants to do the Before Trilogy. We're going to have to wait until that last movie hits 15 years so we'll call you in six years. And I will say if you guys say those don't stand the test of time I will be hurt. Hackers, I'm not hurt. I understand. If you you say the Before Trilogy doesn't then I'm going to cry. Uh, I will confess the same thing I confessed about Hackers. I've never seen any of those. (sighs) Well now you have you have something to do this weekend. Uh, no, I'm going to wait until we're, we're going to have you back on. And then I will watch all three and we will talk about those movies. I'm totally in for that. Fair enough. I love it. Well, thank you again, Brett. Really, really great seeing you. Great chatting with you. And yeah, we'll do this again soon-ish. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we will round out our hacking trilogy with Swordfish, the movie from 2001 that I think was basically famous for one thing, 
or maybe two things, depending on how you look at it. I'm thinking of Halle Berry's boobs. Until then, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Go to testoftimepod.com and find all of our old back episodes, including our episode about Ghostbusters 2, when I mentioned how much Brett Sills hates that movie, and the ending, and the whole thing, all of it in general. Um, and we will see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Hack the planet. Hack the planet. Hack the planet. Hack the planet.